The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sport Box. Here are your headlines today. The Nasdaq charges ahead on track for its best first half of the year since 1983, thanks to an AI-fueled rise in tech names. China's recovery momentum stalls. Factory activity in the world's second largest economy shrinks for a third straight month, fanning calls for more economic stimulus. EU leaders band together for a two-day meeting in Brussels, vowing more security guarantees for Ukraine in the wake of Wagner's failed mutiny in Russia. It showed deep cracks in Putin's system. Um, this mutiny of last weekend will also have aftershocks that we will see. The more it is important that we double down on the support for Ukraine, be it uh, military capability or financial support. Nike shares stepped down an extended trade after the sportswear giant posted its first earnings miss in three years flagged disappointing first quarter revenue guidance. And more signs of a thaw in the IPO market as shares in thrift store chain Savers Value Village jump in their New York debut, while Chinese online fashion retailer Sheen is reported to have filed for a US listing. What a year it has been on stock markets so far as we look to wrap up the first half. The rebound in technology stocks has been this year's market headline. And two indices in particular have reaped the benefits, the Nasdaq and the Nikkei in Japan. Both are up almost 30% on the year with very little between the two. Let's dive into some of the numbers then as the tech-heavy Nasdaq is on pace for its best first half performance since 1983 when it gained 37%, far outperforming its US peers, the S&P and the Dow. Compare that to last year when the index created 30% during the first six months alone. And the biggest driver for the Nasdaq has been the recent euphoria in artificial intelligence, which investors believe will likely add billions of dollars in value and huge market share to some of Silicon Valley's biggest names. The Nasdaq's three leaders so far this year have been NVIDIA, Tesla and Meta. In case you think we've been talking about these stocks a lot, we have. And this is why, look at that performance, 179% up for NVIDIA stock, 133 plus percent for Meta. Tesla zooming ahead, gaining 109% so far. Well, NVIDIA has come to dominate the market for AI chips and in May posted a bumper earnings report that saw its shares surge 24% and catapulted towards the elite club of $1 trillion market cap companies. As for Meta and Tesla, they've also enjoyed a bumper start to the year thanks to returning investor appetite for tech stocks, with both coming back from a disappointing 2022. Don't forget a couple of features here. First up, it was the cost-cutting that the sector relied on as some of that investor appetite was waning. Investors were concerned about the 
Fed's move is still earlier in the year, so the cost cutting helped. But then, of course, the, the gifting of that AI story rallying a lot of these names. Yeah. But just point out when it comes to the Nasdaq performance too, it was really three very different months. January, very strong gains, yeah. sideway action for about three months. And the last two months on the Nasdaq, where you've seen that pop thanks to the AI story. Yeah, that, and maybe that AI story continues, but some suggesting that maybe it does come uh, to a head at some point. I mean, that's a doubling of that stock, of these stocks, right, over the first half of the year. Let's shift our attention as well then uh, to the east, of course, where also gains have been seen here, particularly the Nikkei Japan's benchmark index, enjoying highs not seen in over 30 years in late May. It even managed to cross that 30,000 mark for the first time since 19. 90, as well as relatively low inflation and rates still in negative territory, Japanese companies appear to be reaping the benefits from a number of economic and regulatory reforms, all of those spurring companies to engage in new investments instead of simply seeking to reduce the debt burden there. So you are seeing those gains, as we said, nearly 30% up on this index year to date. Also, at the same time, of course, we do look at how things will fare for the remainder of the year. The big question marks have always been just around how they will do when it comes to intervention. Of course, Japan's blue chips have also benefited from a historically weak yen, currently sitting at what is a seven-month low against the dollar, making goods and services more competitively priced than their international competitors. And Japan has even caught the eye of famed investor Warren Buffett, who, of course, in the month of April, increased his stakes in the country's five biggest trading houses, sending their shares soaring. Now, watchers see it as an endorsement in the country by the Oracle of Omaha. At different features going on, huge laser focus in Japan to try and bolster corporate profitability, changing their approach for the first time in many years. And of course, the technology stocks on top of that. But let's just broaden out the conversation because Ankit Gidea joins us now, Head of Equity and Derivative Strategy at BNP Paribas. Ankit, what jumps out about this market as we count down to end of the half is that it does look smooth on top of the water. Underlying that, it feels as though there's some churn. You've got a market that is effectively stuffed with a lot of options, call options in particular. What danger lurks for investors looking to get into this market now? So uh, we track fund flow on our side very closely. So as you said, NASDAQ has been up quite a bit since the start of the year. But when we look at flows into technology stocks, it has really been exponential. Uh, since the start of the year and particularly in the last two months and if you look at flows in every other equity asset class so all the other sectors all the other headline indices flows have been exponentially down so it's really been one sector benefit benefiting from this ai boom and uh, one index as you said uh, nikai japanese uh, nikai index benefiting from ai boom while everything else has been left behind and historically such a narrow rally tends to not be sustainable. So if you look at S&P performance, equal weighted versus market cap weighted, obviously the three-month performance difference looks very extreme now. So the big question I think we are facing now is will the other sectors catch up? And I think that will be something to look out for in the second half of this year. And Kit, as we talk about some of the technicals here, and I mentioned options a moment ago, nearly $16 billion worth of uh, JP Morgan hedged equity fund uh, will effectively uh, roll over uh, options positions today. What does that mean as we take a look at some of the technicals behind the scenes here? 
so we think on the option side, we, we have obviously seen a lot of call interest, but I think that's most symptomatic of short positions been covered by investors trying to chase upside uh, by buying uh, upside equity optionality. On the equity wall side, it's still very, very low. So when you look at VIX or V2X in Europe, uh, we are back to pre-COVID levels. That means buying optionality and buying equity market upside or downside via optionality is still very attractive. And probably given how equities have performed since the start of the year, it's probably the better instrument to take uh, to position for equity upside. With vol so low and arguably cheap, it's much better. You're much better off buying upside call option rather than buying delta exposure after uh, the stocks have rallied by 30, 40%. Ankit, good morning to you then. Uh, are, are you looking defensive in your positioning then for the remainder of the year, as you were noting there with those calls being the better options for the remainder of the year? Would you, would you rather go into that defensive sector then for the last six months? Uh, I think defensive is where people have been since the start of the year. Uh, so if you look at fund flows, we have seen a lot of inflows into defensive sectors and late cycle sectors uh, since the start of the year, and particularly since the beginning of March uh, after the start of U.S. regional banking crisis. And I would argue that flows into defensive sectors have been ex- quite extreme. Uh, so and only in the last two to three weeks, you have started to see that change. So I call this recession fatigue. Uh, at the start of the year, there was a lot of anticipation for a 2023 recession. And now we are starting to see uh, flows out of some of these defensive sectors and into more cyclical pro-growth sectors. Uh, so tech clearly is benefiting from that. And my expectations are that other sectors should catch up. So in Europe, we are quite bullish uh, on value factor, which tends to be, again, pro-cyclical and tends to perform better. Uh, in an improving economic uh, environment. So sectors like banks, oil and gas, we think are quite, uh, looks quite attractive for the second half of this year. But we would still like to position via options rather than Delta, given that concerns of recessions are still lurking around somewhere. So those cyclicals still uh, seem to offer a little bit as well. Are you seeing uh, a similar uptick, I suppose, then for the remainder of the year for tech still? Um, or are you expecting them to kind of uh, gradually maintain that pace? Because you, you speak about the other sectors sort of catching up to this. Is that on the basis that tech does sort of remain pat from here? Uh, I think on tech, we are still in the early days of this new technology. We need to wait and see how it pans out. What is the real earnings upside for many of these stocks and sectors? And we think we'll find out as companies report their earnings and as we get more information and how this technology is going to change our life. Uh, And from that aspect, I think technology sector is one that is very hard to stay away from. We have seen over the past decade, uh, last year was tough for the sector, and this year we are back again. So from I think tech is likely to stay in favor. Let me jump to another market, and the UK market in particular. We've had a 50 basis point rate cut from the Bank of England uh, that uh, move from the central bank to try and catch up to those interest rate in- expectations. Post-COVID, the FTSE was a winner. This year, flat performance versus uh, stellar gains elsewhere, somewhat disappointing. As you look at the fortunes now of the FTSE 100 versus, say, the FTSE 250, what lies ahead? Yeah, so I think 
Bank of England policy was quite stern, and they want they showed that they wanted to be front foot in fighting inflation. What this typically means that if you want to fight inflation, if you want to bring inflation down, then you are effectively trying to slow down the economy. And if you are trying to slow down the economy, then you're obviously your domestic uh, stock market, so that is the FTSE 250, is likely to suffer. So we tend to see a very strong correlation between interest rates and FTSE 100 over FTSE 250 performance. This relationship has broken down uh, with interest rates keep going higher. FTSE 250 has not really underperformed materially since the start of the year. We do expect higher rates to bite uh, the economic outlook, the UK economy to slow down. And as a result, we expect FTSE 250 to underperform. Uh, last year, FTSE 100 did well because it was flat while everything else is down. And this year, FTSE 100 is doing poorly because again, it's flat while everything else is up. On a two-year basis, the performance looks more or less in line, I would argue. Yeah, Ankit, if we quickly just look at the rest of Europe then uh, as well, particularly uh, the likes of the DAX going up 14.5% thus far, really being one of the, the, uh, the star performers, as opposed to if you don't take a look at Italy as well, which is also up nearly 18% thus far. Um, where would you base uh, some sense of gains here? Where would you position? Uh, so in Europe, we quite like uh, the FTSE 100 still. Uh, we think it has all the right sectors. So big weight of financials, big weight of oil and gas and mining sector. Uh, we call these value cyclical sectors, which we expect to outperform uh, in the second half of this year as investors uh, move away from recessionary sectors like uh, defensive late cycle sectors into more cyclical segment of the market. So I would argue within Europe, uh, FTSE 100 remains our preferred index. Uh, in Eurozone area, we have a slight preference for the French uh, CAC index because of the higher weighting of uh, luxury goods sector, which we think uh, will continue to benefit uh, from strong demand from global consumers and also in China. And as a result, we think uh, the CAC 40, 40 index should outperform rest of the year, particularly given the underperformance over the past two to three months. Ankit, thank you very much for talking us through the market so far, year to date, and also what lies ahead. Ankit Gidea with us, Head of Equity and Derivatives Strategy at BNP Paribas. Coming up on the show, EU leaders gather in Brussels with the war in Ukraine still front and centre. We'll have the latest from our team on the ground right after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Now, Chinese factory activity shrunk for the third straight month in June. The official manufacturing PMI reading of 49 was slightly better than in May, but still signifies contraction. That heaps more pressure on policymakers to act to shore up weak demand. Services PMI eased to 53.2. 
In light of the data, let's take you to some of the market performance across the Asian boards. And uh, Arabile was fleshing out the performance of the Japanese stock market, which has been such a standout globally this year. In contrast to that, the Chinese markets have been underperforming. That's from the Hong Kong market, where you've seen a lot of those listed property names, even tech names, to the Shanghai Composite. Uh, the Hong Kong market traveling weaker by almost 4% so far year to date versus a fairly modest 4% gain for the Shanghai market. This, despite all of the extra stimulus from the PBOC, trying to tweak liquidity and financial conditions on the ground to shore up support for the economy, as this reopening theme in China has not been as strong as many had anticipated, including for the Chinese. The Australian market, often seen as a proxy for the uh, Chinese market in Australia, you can see 2.2% gain, just slight as well as that commodities picture is somewhat trapped in a range because of that China reopening theme. A uh, close-up look elsewhere at that Chinese market and uh, the very different boards across the uh, various markets, as you can see. Green for that Shanghai composite for the Shenzhen market as well, but uh, slightly weaker for the CSI and, of course, for Hong Kong, the Arabile. Well, Karen, UK Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden told CNBC he's open to anyone, including China, stepping in to resolve the conflict in Ukraine. But it would require Russia to stop the fighting. Speaking to our Asia colleagues, Dowden said Russia could still do the right thing and withdraw. I'm actually focused on the, the best possible outcome. And the best possible uh, outcome is that uh, the people of Ukraine uh, regain uh, their full freedom and full independence and full uh, territorial uh, integrity before this, from before this uh, invasion happened. That is the, the right thing to do. And uh, Russia can still do the right thing to do and uh, stop this. Uh, invasion. That is really uh, where my focus is. I'm, I'm not going to speculate on different scenarios or outcomes in respect of Russia. How would the UK feel uh, if China were to play more of a mediator role to bring about peace in Ukraine? Well, we welcome uh, any uh, interventions to, to bring uh, peace and security to Ukraine. But what that requires is a cessation of Russian hostility and a restoration of the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Now, EU leaders have agreed long-term security commitments for Ukraine, including an expansion of existing support. The bloc pledged to continue military support for the war-torn country, as well as further training of troops and a modernization of the army. This after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged the EU to work on a new round of sanctions against Russia. Now, the war in Ukraine, as well as the bloc's response to Russia and China, are among key topics at the ongoing European Council uh, meeting in Brussels. Charlotte is on the ground with more for us. Charlotte, they want to show a united front, but there are divisions which have persisted. Yes, absolutely. Well, look, the European leaders here meeting with Bosogo about uh, competitivity, migration, but of course the events at the weekend, that Wagner mutiny, uh, meant that they, have, of course, Ukraine and defense came back on top of the agenda. That's what they discussed uh, yesterday, tried to take stock of the events, what it meant, of, what it meant for the war in uh, Ukraine, and basically saying, from what we heard from a lot of leaders, saying the events showed that there were some cracks on the Russian side, and here they wanted to show that there was a unity on the European side. 
side a commitment to support Ukraine for as long as it takes with humanitarian, economic and military support, of course. But as you said, in uh, the conclusions, there, it was very interesting to hear that were, uh, the leader said they were ready to contribute uh, to future security commitments to Ukraine. And that was a bit of a controversy. There was a proposal that was put on the table by France and a lot of the uh, countries that thought that was more a question to do under NATO or countries that are more military uh, neutral said they, they weren't quite sure what it meant. But here it was included in the text. So what it could mean, as you mentioned in the introduction, is that they could set up potentially a fund uh, there that was just dedicated for Ukraine to modernize its military and to do some training as well of its soldiers. That's something they will discuss there. There were not details on how, how this would mean, but this certainly was included. Also, Pedro Sanchez, who will take the rotating EU presidency from Saturday, from tomorrow, will do his purposes straight away to Kiev on Saturday. He will be meeting President Zelensky again here, the EU showing this commitment to Ukraine with this move there. So uh, also, we are just 10 days away from the all-important NATO summit in Vilnius. And the Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was also at the meeting yesterday with the European leaders and I had a chance to catch up with him. And I did ask uh, him at his arrival uh, whether the events at the weekend meant that uh, the NATO allies and EU uh, members were thinking of adjusting the support they were giving to Ukraine. This is what he said. Yeah, together with the European Union, NATO allies have uh, provided unprecedented support and, and, and we are stepping up just off, over the last uh, uh, weeks. We have seen new announcements uh, from uh, EU but also from NATO allies of additional support uh, and also the training of the F-16 pilots have uh, started. What we have seen during the last weekend is uh, uh, in, strong, in, in, in contrast with uh, the very uh, strong EU unity and NATO EU unity. This is a very important point. Additional element I have the occasion is today to meet with uh, the opposition leadership in Belarus. We are also uh, following closely what's happening in this country. And that was Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, and Charles Michel, the President of the Council, speaking to me yesterday, of course, as the EU leaders were trying to take stock of what happened at the weekend in Russia, when it meant for the war in Ukraine. But interestingly, today, one of the big topics would be the relationship with China. Uh, and that would, that's, of course, a difficult conversation, because uh, last week the Commission presented their uh, new paper about uh, European economic security, and they talk about de-risking and potentially curtailing some exports particularly on some very specific sensitive technology that could be put on the military use. And so while that paper presented yesterday by the Commission didn't name China in particular, the word de-risking that paper was very clear of what uh, that was about. And of course, there are the very different views within the EU on how to handle the relationship with China. Remember the, the, the Chinese Premier being in Germany just last week, signing a lot of contracts with these big German companies, of course, export a huge amount of products uh, to China. So that would be the conversation today. And whether they can align their views on the relationship. And so I did put that question to the Latvian Prime Minister, Mr. Karinch, uh, talking about how uh, can the EU de-risk the relationship with China while at the same time try to keep a, a, a conversation with China, keep the country engaged given the geopolitical context. This is what he said. This is the, the million euro question, um, but de-risking I think is the right direction to go. Uh, I think with uh, the events in Russia, we can see that a dependence, uh, in Russia's case it was an energy dependence, in China's case it may be a goods or a manufactured goods dependence uh, or part of the manufacturing chain. Uh, we need to de-risk and that means to, to, to be able to step back to some degree because uh, uh, geopolitically the growing relationship or the apparently growing relationship between China and Russia 
is a potential problem for all of us. There you go, the million euro question on how to redesign the relationship with China, de-risking here, that, like we heard from the Latvian Prime Minister, trying to learn the lesson of what happened with Russia and having the, the European bloc not already dependent on another power. So with Russia, it was energy. And I said the manufacturing and a lot of the supply chain being reliant on China. So how to redesign and rebalance this relationship. Of course, we know that the U.S. is already putting some efforts into it, pushing for much, much tougher kind of uh, measures. So the Europeans have to try to come to an agreement on what should be the relationship uh, with China going ahead while still, of course, uh, not killing their exporters. So that would be the conversation on the table today. Very interesting conversation there. But of course, still the leaders try to take stock of what's, what was happening uh, at the weekend in Russia, what that means for the war in Ukraine, and keeping this commitment to uh, Ukraine with its future security commitments there. So very interesting conversation, guys. Charlotte, thank you very much for setting the scene for us for today. Elsewhere, French President Emmanuel Macron is due to hold an emergency government meeting today following a third night of riots in multiple French cities. Protesters clashed with police again in the wake of a deadly police shooting of a teenager during a traffic stop. In Nanterre, where the victim was from, an in Paris protest turned violent, with demonstrators torching cars as well as breaking into a bank and a store. Multiple people were arrested, with 40,000 officers deployed across the country. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.